Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This week, Nick Jones, Senior Editor of Seen and Unseen, introduces and narrates his top pick of three articles from the last few months of Seen and Unseen. Discussions around cancel culture pain me. The toxic terms, the shouting and the crystal clear divisions bring to mind a really barren place where where people fear to tread. That's why Erin Critter's article on the subject is so good. With insights and grace, she gently helps people like me to navigate around this barren place. Her analysis analysis of what's in the balance is spot on. And she helps us lift our gaze from our feet towards a much better, healthier place. Our take on the Christmas story is also a less heard one that truly deserves to be heard much, much more often. What's good and bad about cancel culture? Looking to an ancient story of compassion, Erin Critter seeks inspiration for an ethical response to social censure. You cannot ignore cancel culture today. In her 2022 BBC Reef lecture, the writer Chiamanda Nagoni Adichie called it social censure. Even beyond universities and other public forums, many of us worry about the effect of cancel culture in everyday social settings. Saying the wrong thing or trying to respond well when someone else does can quickly lead to an awkward family gathering, strained meetings and broken friendships or awaken the ever-present social media trolls. In a post-pandemic moment, when people are struggling to re-establish healthy human interactions, cancel culture can make social engagement seem even more challenging. How can we navigate this moment well? Behind the fraught discussion and growing angst around cancel culture, we can perhaps detect something well worth preserving, compassion. Some of the most hated controversies today involve language concerning people who have been historically disadvantaged. Genuine compassion motivates many who want society to speak more kindly, with more understanding, in order to avoid perpetuating harm to people who have already suffered. People who have been hurt deserve to be acknowledged, and that means taking their pain seriously. This compassion is an important and noble instinct. Many faith traditions call us to honour the vulnerable and pursue justice. At the same time, resistance to cancel culture also includes an element of compassion. Within the voices expressing concern about cancel culture, it can often be heard a humble awareness that we're all prone to say the wrong thing at times. We cannot hope to learn or grow without honest risk and mutual human grace. A brief period of silence to let emotions cool can be helpful. Ending a relationship permanently seems less helpful. It might seem easier to say nothing than to risk offence, but silence out of fear of ending a relationship itself ends the relationship. Seeking to continue a difficult but important conversation can also be an important and noble instinct. Many faith traditions also encourage humble self-assessment and generous engagement with others. As the Bible records Jesus saying, let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. None of us is holy above reproach, and we all need a bit of compassion and grace. So, 
how do we balance these conflicting calls of justice and grace? This conflict might seem peculiarly modern, but in the story we retell every Christmas, we see a young man named Joseph wondering how to balance justice with gracious concern for someone who had deeply disappointed him. Joseph is engaged to Mary, but she's been found to be pregnant. Joseph is sure the baby isn't his. In their culture, a woman who is pregnant outside of marriage brought shame to her fiancé, her family and the whole community. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Joseph was a righteous man, which meant that he appreciated the demands of justice. Ignoring her situation meant ignoring the pain they all felt, papering over a grave offence which they wanted no part of. At the same time, though, the text also tells us that Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame. Like many people today, Joseph wanted to leave Mary some way to move forward with her life, but their culture did not provide people much opportunity to learn from tragic mistakes. Sometimes it can feel as if ours doesn't either. If you're familiar with the story, you already know how it ends, but it's important not to skip too quickly past Joseph's dilemma. It feels strangely modern, Joseph's desire for justice coupled with his equally strong desire not to see someone condemned because of a single mistake. Thankfully, the story also describes a way forward from Joseph's dilemma, the baby in Mary's womb, Jesus. In Jesus, we see the depth of God's compassion for all who suffer. Jesus never ignored the painful consequences evil can create. Indeed, he allowed himself to experience the absolute worst of humanity. As an adult, Jesus was thrown out of his home village and religious community. According to the Gospels, he endured one of the most unjust trials ever recorded. Jesus was tortured, beaten and sentenced to a cruel death. When we suffer injustice, we are not experiencing something alien to Jesus and therefore alien to God. But there is another side to Jesus' suffering that is equally important. Jesus also demonstrates profound compassion for people who made terrible mistakes. Jesus never misstepped or said a single cruel word, but he allowed himself to experience the full shame and isolation of being cast out of society. Crucifixion was the ultimate censure, being publicly put to death outside of the wall of the city. Yet even in this moment, Jesus demonstrated compassion for the people who had harmed him. While on the cross, he forgave those who put him there. Jesus offered forgiveness to the man dying on the next cross to his own, who, by his own admission, deserved his fate. In contrast to aspects of cancel culture, Jesus' action at the moment of extreme injustice tells us that human redemption is always possible. Jesus created a compassionate way forward from guilt and shame. Whatever our situation, we can find life-giving grace and healing in Christ. Compassion isn't easy. It costs Jesus dearly, and at times it will cost us too. Courageous compassion creates much-needed opportunities to heal, learn, and grow. When we suffer, and when we err, cruelty and failure do not get the last word. As it says in the last few pages of the Bible, Jesus is making all things new. Cancel culture 
ends conversations and damages relationships, but a better balance between the righteous demands of justice and the need for redemptive grace remains possible. war today thanks to social media we are confronted by in our feeds and not just on news channels. This article is by Owen, a serving soldier who shares his story uh, about why he fights. It's deeply personal and honest and he's confronting questions most of us fear to ask of ourselves. What is it worth dying for? On war fighting, why do soldiers go to war? There are a thousand different answers, writes Owen, a serving soldier. The car bomb went off at 06.30, rudely awakening me from a deep sleep. The noise, big and bassy, was followed by silence, followed by the wailing of the camp attack alarm. I felt a range of emotions in those moments, but definitely present was a sense of relief. So that's what it sounds like. I'd been in Kabul for two or three months uh, by that point and had always been slightly on edge whenever I walked between buildings, knowing that an explosion was inevitable at some point, but not knowing how loud it would really be. Afghanistan was my first operational tour. It was 2014 and the British presence in the country was shrinking rapidly. And my reward for a good performance on my intelligent officers corps was assignment to unit deployed to the Afghan capital. It might seem a strange reward, but it was sincerely meant and gratefully received. Why does a soldier go to war? You can ask a thousand men and women in the armed forces and get a thousand different answers. The most straightforward and superficial answer is because I was ordered to. But delve below the surface and you find all manner of motivations and justifications. All I can offer to you is why I think I wanted to join the British Army and fight there are reasons that are probably hidden even to me. And how, as a Christian, I make sense of war. I joined the army at a time when what were known as the Blair's Wars were stuttering to an unsatisfactory conclusion. We had withdrawn from Iraq, leaving behind a broken country and unwittingly paving the way for Islamic State. And soldiers were still fighting and dying in, dying in Helmand province, Afghanistan. While I was going through selection process for the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, there was a plethora of war documentaries on television that had been filmed using helmet cameras, giving an unprecedented first-person view of conflict. A normal person might have watched these programmes and thought they were no part of it whatsoever. I saw them and wanted in. Why? I look back and think there was all sorts of reasons floating around my head. There was undoubtedly a slightly boyish sense of adventure. It seemed like most of my peers at universities were off to be bankers, lawyers or management consultants. And I wanted to do something a bit less grey. There was a desire to challenge myself too. A worthy reason, but still not the full story. What appealed to me most was the responsibility of deploying to a dangerous place with your fellow soldiers and doing everything in your power to keep them alive and complete your mission. I saw soldiering as less a job, more of a calling. Throughout my career, much has changed, but the sense of responsibility is still there. It is at the heart of how I understand 
being a Christian in conflict zones. My personal theology of war, if you like. When I come home from came home from Afghanistan, I was asked by a friend whether I had killed anyone. I said I hadn't. He then asked if I thought I could bring myself to do so, should the situation arise. I said that I hoped so, because I'd been in armed sentry duty multiple times, and so was the only person standing between my colleagues and the enemy. If I had identified a suicide bomber and decided not to shoot in that moment, then would I have been betraying the responsibility I had to my friends? Indeed, I doubt that any suicide bomber would have thought worse of me had I shot him. He'd recognise that I had my job to do, just as he had his. Of course, this line of thinking is problematic. If I am just doing my job and the suicide bomber is doing his, then in moral terms, we are surely are only as good or bad as each other. His God calls him to do his duty, look after his brothers and sisters, and so does mine, and we are therefore equally right or equally wrong. Who is anyone to judge between us? And who am I to claim the morality of what I'm doing for a living? And yet, sincerely holding a belief does not make you, make you right. The failings of moral relativism are well documented. Yet too often we act as the sort of people who treat the question, what is truth, as a viable philosophical position, rather than moral evasion that it is. We in the West are jaded by complex and bloody counterinsurgencies with no clear end state. Affirming Bart Simpson's dictum, there are no good wars with the following exceptions, the American Revolution, World War II and the Star Wars trilogy. But the conflict in Ukraine has shown that binary wars between an obvious aggressor and a nation defending the homeland are not merely history and that today people can still take up arms for justifiable reason. I'm a Christian, so I'm a pacifist in the sense that peace is vastly preferable to war. I've seen firsthand the suffering and misery it causes. Yet, as a Christian too, I cannot affirm peace at all costs when it means the rights and lives of innocent people can be callously disregarded by an oppressor it can only be resisted by force. I look at pictures of bombed-out apartment blocks in Ukraine, of kidnapped schoolgirls in Nigeria, of civilians murdered in Afghanistan, and cannot affirm anything less than this, that there are things in this world worth fighting for. I would reflect too that both my calling as a soldier and my faith have given me a sense of the value of life, not as something not to be clung to at all costs, but as a gift to be made the most of. One of the things we did in our first week of Sandhurst was to make a will. There was I, fresh out of university, deciding who should inherit my meagre possessions. I didn't even have a car. And asking the bloke next to me, who'd only met 24 hours ago, to witness my signature. To be honest, it didn't feel real. What's felt much more real was posing in the unit sports hall two years later, arms crossed, a Union Jack and regimental flag behind me, knowing that it was the photo that could be used in the newspapers if I was blown up in Afghanistan. When you're forced to confront the fact that you might die, you start to realise what it is that you are living for. I believe in the sacredness of life as a God-given gift, which makes the ideas of sacrifice, which lie at the heart of Christian faith, all the more powerful. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says in John's Gospel, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you see that mutual love in a tight-knit unit 
where one soldier is prepared to die for another. I think it's the idea of living and possibly dying for something or someone more than just me is what keeps me in the army. And there are many of those who made their wills in that room in Sandhurst have left for, for civilian jobs. Which brings me back to my initial reflection that there are many different reasons why people join the armed forces and go to war. My Christian faith is at the heart of my reasons, but I'm realistic to know that many of my colleagues do not share that faith and so would have a different motivation, though perhaps not quite as different as one might think. We all have stories to tell about why things matter to us and matter to us so much that we think they are worth fighting for in whatever disguise fighting takes. You've heard my story. We're all getting older, yet we do not wish to identify as old. But how our society handles ageing and the elderly is going to be a massive issue going forward. Shan Brooks's review of Plan 75 a Japanese film about fictional assisted dying scheme, really unpacks not just the policy questions, but the real human questions that we need to ask and seek answers for. The dying decision, choice, coercion and community. Plan 75 reveals a lot about our relationlessness, says Shan Brooks, as she reviews the Japanese drama about medical assistance in dying. Being able to choose when my life will end, provided me with peace of mind. With no feelings of doubt, she led a good life in her terms, people will say. In Chi Hayakawa's recent dystopian drama, Plan 75, these are the words of a silver-haired, wrinkled woman in a promotional video for the eponymous plan. A government scheme which offers all over 75 years olds the options of a pain-free death at the time they're choosing. And yet, for Michi, an older lady toying with the decisions around Plan 75, it doesn't really feel like it is her choice which matters at all. Whether it is the $1,000 grant offered as an incentive to die, the luxury amenities and offer at the Plan 75 facility promoted in the leaflets and magazines, or the young person employed to gently guide the candidates towards their death, whose real job it is to make sure that they follow through with it. This is a world which has a queer agenda to rid society of older people. Indeed, it is clear that this is a vision of a world which believes it is better for older people to die than to put financial burdens on the economy or their family. And this is a culture willing to subtly coerce individuals to accept and act in that belief. Plan 75 reveals an interesting point at the heart of the medical assistance in dying, MAID, debate. One of the primary reasons that MAID so attractive is the ability to take back control of one's life and death. But what happens when that seeming control isn't really within the individual's own control at all? For Plan 75, what is marketed as giving control back to older people is really just a twist on a more sinister political policy to pressure individuals to sacrifice their burdensome lives for the greater good. Of course, this is a common argument for rejection of assisted suicide. This is the dangerous slippy slope where MAID begins as an option only for those who desperately need it to relieve intense physical suffering. Yet it quickly becomes a tool to remove people whose lives no longer seem worthy 
living or seem worth living due to societal expectations and opinions rather than any objective reality. For many, this problem can be appeased through strict legal controls over MAID. As long as the powers that can be can regulate, MAID is still okay. As long as it is the individual who maintains control over their own death and not the state, the goal of personal autonomy is maintained and all is well. And yet this perspective fails to ask the question, is such control over our own death ever actually possible? Do we ever truly choose to die totally independent of the expectations of those around us? In a world which places so little value in old age, can older people really make choices unaffected by that deeply flawed and inhumane logic? And indeed, the elephant in the room, no matter how much we try to control death, in the end, is it not death that ultimately controls us? As fundamentally finite beings, we can never escape it completely. We'll always find us one way or another. Ultimately, we will all have to face the reality of death when it comes to us. Complete control and autonomy are never truly possible. In light of this unveiling, the possibility that complete choice and autonomy around death isn't really an attainable goal, what better options might we pursue? One thing is clear in Plan 75. The isolation and loneliness of older people in a society that has rejected them is deeply problematic. The movie primarily follows the stories of Michi, who lives alone with no family, and Yukio Okabe, an older man, totally estranged from his remaining family. Both face life and are facing death alone. We live in a world where increasingly we are forced to face death alone, when our final days and hours rarely happen in the family home, surrounded by our loved ones, but in faceless institutions devoid of lifelong meaningful relationship. The sense that we're no longer doing death together as a society is acute. Where previously we would find comfort and hope in being loved, known and held by others in our death, now all too often this isn't the case. At the same time, there's no doubt that our modern world is unceasingly committed to the idea of individual personal agency and autonomy. She led a good life in her terms. As a myriad of philosophers and theologians have commented, belief in human autonomy has come to replace belief in God. And made is one area which reveals this to be the case most acutely. Where previously we would turn to God to find comfort in the face of our finitude, instead now we turn to ourselves. The last hope we find in the face of death is our own individual ability to control it. The German theologian Eberhard Jungel describes death in this broken world as the occurrence of complete relationlessness. In fact, Jungel suggests that as human beings, we are first and foremost made up of our relationships. We are truly human, not by how we self-define in isolation, but how we relate relate to God who made us and how we relate to other people. The need for relationship is found more acutely, most acutely in the face of death. As Ashley Moyce points out in his book, Resourcing Hope for the Age, Aging and Dying in a Broken World, death and health should be a corporate phenomenon. Where one person is ill, all of society is ill. And so as death increasingly becomes the journey of the individual, when we face death in isolation from others and isolation from God, no wonder we feel such a strong desire towards control, towards ending our lives prematurely, towards science to help us of 
avoid any more pain than we can bear alone. In Plan 75, we see glimmers of hope in the possibility of relationship. As Michi and Yukio find rare moments of human connection with a long-lost nephew, the person working for Plan 75, with another older person going through the same questions about morality, you can't help but feel deeply uncomfortable with their choice to apply for the scheme. It is in the hints of love, physical touch, smiles exchanged, even a simple conversation shared between two people that suddenly made seem so disconnected with the hope that life still has to offer through relationship. Perhaps if we could imagine a world where death became no longer an occurrence of complete relationlessness, but a locus for relational dependence, for family for connection, for leaning in God and not ourselves, the need for maid would feel a little less necessary. It would be a world with a little more hope. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.